Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy Chevra. Wonderful to see you. Wonderful to see you in this holy week of the Yamim Noraim between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. A wonderful time to learn Torah, to learn Torah together and come together as a community and think about important questions. And um, I'm very excited to explore debate number 19 with you. What is the center of Jewish life? Israel versus the diaspora. Let's start with a poll. Let's start with a poll to get your views on uh, what you think about this. What is the center of Jewish life? Option number one, Israel is the clear center. The diaspora is the total sideline to the playing field. Option two, Israel is slightly more central, but American Judaism is extremely crucial. Option three, there is no center. Everywhere is important. Option four, the diaspora is most important. Israel is just another important Jewish location. Okay, friends, so let's see what you want to vote here. Give you a few moments. I know these are hard to vote. It is, these are difficult votes. Don't worry. You won't be held accountable. It won't be shared publicly. Okay. If we have everyone's vote, we can see the results. Okay, very interesting, very interesting. 9% say Israel is the clear center. 36% say Israel is slightly more central, but American Judaism is extremely crucial. 55% says there's no center, everywhere is important. And zero say the diaspora is most important. Okay, very interesting. So friends, let me start off with my bias or lack of a bias, but really a bias. I never believe someone if they say lack of a bias. <laughs> I love America um, and I love Canada. Lauren, um, I'm born in Canada and I love Israel. Um, and um, I also struggle with America. I, I don't really struggle with Canada, but I struggle with America. I struggle with Israel, but I love them. I love them. And so I have no agenda here of, oh, I'm a Zionist, everyone make Aliyah now, or I'm anti-Israel, nobody go to Israel. These aren't my agendas. I love it all. And I want to explore our tradition around the issue of what is the center. So friends, here we go. For decades, modern Jews were taught that the two most formative events that define the contemporary Jewish experience are the Holocaust and the founding of the state of Israel, right? No chidush, no insight there. Everyone knows that. That trauma and that glory remain formative, but perhaps they can no longer be exclusive and central if we're serious about fostering thriving Jewish life throughout the world, including where so much of contemporary Jewry is found in the diaspora. If everything is about the shtetl and about Israel, what does that mean about building Jewish life in the diaspora? Indeed, we must focus on the here and now. Since the moment many of us took our first breaths, We've been taught that our priority should be supporting Israel, as that is the playing field for Jewish life. Those of us outside of Israel are merely on the sidelines. This may be true. It is as if those who live inside Israel are the book, and everyone outside the borders are merely the footnotes. From my perspective, however, I wonder, could the opposite also be true? Israel may become, by reality and by necessity, less significant and central to the success of global Jewish life. 
or the opposite could become true. Israel is, of course, vitally important for what it has achieved for the Jewish people and for what has contributed to the broader world. The potential is even greater with the hopes that the state of Israel can constitute a center from which the Jewish nation might fully become an or legoyim, a unique light unto the nations, representing our cherished eternal values. With all of this work to build the Jewish state over the decades, however, have we neglected the needs of the diaspora? Don't mistake my intentions. I am a passionate religious Zionist who will visit, donate, support, love, struggle with, and challenge policies of Israel all my life. I, or my kid, or my children in any event, may even move there one day. Don't worry, no time soon. But I think we need, we need to realize that the propaganda was potentially wrong. The diaspora Jewry's primary role is not to support Israel through blind advocacy and fundraising. Rather, the primary role of our diaspora communities, rather than advocating for Israel, is to build vibrant Jewish life here in the now. Now, this, now in this moment, the souls that are here right now matter. Their values and visions matter. Here we interact with great respect with other cultures, bring Jewish values into the public marketplace in healthy ways, and have a full spectrum of pluralistic ways to engage with Jewish life. There's no doubt we have enormous challenges here in North American Jewish life, rising anti-Semitism, low affiliation rates, political challenges, among many others. But for many, those challenges are far less alienating than the state-mandated religious coercion or the state's violent conflicts and sectorial infighting for which today's Israel is so well known. Indeed, even many Israelis seeking a pluralistic, vibrant Jewish life that is authentically rooted while also being universalistic, inclusive, social justice oriented, and innovative are often attracted to American Jewish life, even while they live in Israel, over Israeli Jewish life. American Jews have been taught to make Israel so primary that sadly nationalism is slowly replacing religion. It's called Israelism, replacing Judaism. Heated arguments are no longer about God, halakha, denominations, innovation, or Jewish values, as much as they are about Israeli policies. One's Israel politics is what decides if they are in or out of social circles. A rabbi told me that worse than declaring from the bima that he was an atheist would be to fail to attend an APAC policy conference or to attend but fail to stand every time his community clapped at each moment that delegation did so. On the other hand, some who identify as Zionists at times find themselves marginalized in Jewish progressive circles, precisely because of their commitment to Israel, viewed perhaps inaccurately as being at the expense of other global Jewish concerns. Obviously, friends, we should invest in Israel in lots of strategic ways, but if we're wise, we will also prioritize building our local community here first. And the identity of this community will be defined by prioritizing our own Jewish learning and incorporating Zionism secondarily. There are those, including Natan Sharansky, the chairman of the Jew uh, former chairman of the Jewish Agency, who made clear that Israel is no longer the home for non-Orthodox religious Jews in the diaspora. Unfortunately, given the rapid growth of the ultra-Orthodox population, the near abandonment of a peace process, attempts to expel African, African asylum seekers, the rejection for so long of egalitarian prayer spaces, the Israeli government's policies being at odds with American Jewish liberals, i.e. the vast majority of American Jews. It is lamentably easy to see a critical sector of the community becoming disengaged with Jewish life itself. If Israel was once the greatest tool for American Jewish engagement, it may now be one of the least effective, with some exceptions, and often the greatest force for alienating young American Jews. Why is this the case? First, the ultra-Orthodox population in Israel is expected to boom over the coming decades. And if they maintain a grip on Israeli politics, they can be sure to secure religious fundamentalism as the dominant religious force. Even while so many in that sector reject work, social integration, service, and women's leadership and education, 
They are empowered when they maintain a powerful role within political coalitions. Second, with over half a million settlers, well over half a million settlers living beyond the green line and rapidly growing, a peace deal becomes only vanishingly possible with a very dangerous and unsettling status quo. Third, Israel as a political entity alienates many when it is seen as lacking interest in cultivating a pluralistic ethos and as rejecting and discrediting the many varied approaches to Jewish life which are dominant in the diaspora. Jews the world over share the wish that we had not been exiled two millennia ago, for two millennia, but we were. Jews evolved to be a flourishing people in the diaspora, having developed alongside other cultures with, in some cases, desired mutual respect and solidarity, even if it hasn't always been returned. More than being a people of the past looking to return to past models, we are a people of the future seeking to solve global moral problems of the coming centuries. Many will be driven by the dream to return to the homeland after two millennia, Baruch Hashem, and can't understand why anyone would remain in the quote-unquote anti-Semitic gullus, the galut, when they could help shape the longed-for Jewish state. What are you doing out there, they say? You could be shaping the state. I hear them. Others disdain, quote-unquote, the new shtetl of Israel, which often places nationalism as primary, and they seek to cultivate a cosmopolitanism in this new rare era where anti-Semitism is alive but far outshined by the forces of universalism, tolerance, and pluralism. Friends, when we pray for kibbutz goliot, the ingathering of exiles, we believe we are referring to those in danger, not those thriving, I would argue. Israel can be and should be a refuge for those Jews who live in anti-Semitic cultures. But living in Israel is not the answer, I believe, for all of global Jewry. Jews in the diaspora, should play a role not just of advocacy and fundraising for the state of Israel, but also to learn and teach to bring light and receive light as proud diaspora Jews. And the issues about which we choose to advocate should not be limited and predictable. We must diversify our ethical interests to represent the fullness of Jewish values in the diaspora. As one who embraces the power and truth of the Torah, and as a religious Zionist who believes God compassionately returned us to our land, I nonetheless believe that there are crucial moral and theological limits that need to be recognized around religious Zionist identity. Torah must have more weight than any religious Zionism in forming our ideologies. The Hasidic network, excuse me, the Hasidic masterwork, the Tanya uh, of, of, uh, of uh, Lubavitch especially, teaches that there is a special virtue in the worship of God outside of Israel that does not exist in the service of God in the land of Israel. That might be surprising because the resting of the divine spirit that is to be placed in the light that follows from the darkness is greater than the light that comes from within the light. That might have been confusing. Let me say that again. The resting of the Shekhinah that is to be placed in the light that follows from the darkness is greater than the light that comes from within the light. Here's one way to think of it. If you're in a dark room and you turn a flashlight on, it illuminates your space. If you're in a light room and you turn a flashlight on, you don't notice the light of the flashlight. It's not that the majority of Jewish wealth sustaining the Jewish community is in the diaspora, as, as true as that may be. Rather, that spiritual light can be experienced uniquely here as well. Rebbe Nachman taught that wherever we bring our spiritual energy, we are in Israel. Wow, this is like Rebbe Nachman of Breslov is doing a post-Zionist Torah. He says, wherever we bring our spiritual energy, at that moment, you are in Israel. Israel is, is a concept. It's a spiritual idea where you put your neshama. It's not, an, it's not earth. It's not earth, Rebbe Nachman is saying. For millennia, Israel has not just been material, but also conceptual and spiritual. God is... Uh, is omnipresent, and the spiritually refined can find God in all places. One serious question that David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, faced just before the creation of the state of Israel was whether ultra-Orthodox Jews would recognize a secular state. In order to win their support, 
He offered to nationally recognize Shabbos, observe kashrut in state institutions, allow autonomy for religious schools, and apply religious law to marriage and personal status. But Ben-Gurion may have underestimated what effect this would have over the succeeding decades. Over time, the majority Jewish secular population has undergone a profound shift due to immigration and the territory seized in the Six-Day War, where some ultra-Orthodox populations are booming. Echoing Ben-Gurion sentiments, former Israeli President Ruvain Rivlin, in his July 2015 speech at the 15th Annual Herzliya Conference, announced that a new Israeli order of four principal tribes had emerged, comprising significant numbers of ultra-Orthodox, Haredi, national religious, modern Orthodox, secular Jewish, and Arab populations. Rivlin stated that there is no longer a clear majority nor clear minority groups. Think about that. And that each are essentially different from each other. It's not that we have secular Israelis, and that's a majority, and then there are some minorities, religious Zionists, Haredim, Arabs. No. He says these four are, are, are all powerhouses in, in forming this state. He pointed out that each tribe has its own schools and media and create huge gaps in society. He hoped that providing a sense of security, shared responsibility, equity and equality, and the creation of a shared Israeli character would provide a solution to Israelis living together in society. One consequence of ceding religious control to the ultra-Orthodox is that civil marriages within Israel are not recognized by the Rabbanut, by the chief rabbinate. Many Israelis either do not qualify or do not believe in marrying according to ultra-Orthodox rules. So they feel compelled to go outside of Israel, like Cyprus, to have a legal marriage. Even immigrants who wish to marry, who provide proof of Jewish identity by obtaining a letter from a rabbi, are often rejected. In 2016, the chief rabbinate rejected letters from 160 rabbis, many of them recognized even as Orthodox in their own communities, in 24 countries, thus denying these people the right to marry in Israel. To share a more recent problematic example, Sephardic chief rabbi Yitzhak Yosef brought shame to the community, in my view, when he called, I'm not in my view, in any view, when he called Black people monkeys. Remember this? To the majority of Jews today, the chief rabbinate, which to them represents Israel's broader religious culture, has in many ways lost its moral authority. We have seen the scourge of racism, anti-Semitism, and similar bigotry afoot in America. Intolerance of a somewhat different kind has been curdling in Israel. The Israeli government's policy regarding egalitarian prayer at the Kotel, the Western Wall, in Yerushalayim, illustrates an increasing divide between official Israeli and American Jewish groups. The chief rabbinate, which controls religious policy at the Kotel, has consistently opposed the active participation of women and non-Orthodox practices at the Kotel. Since 1988, a group of Jewish women from various denominations and nations who go by the name Women of the Wall has attempted to conduct prayer services at the Kotel and have been physically and verbally harassed by ultra-Orthodox adults and children and often arrested for their efforts. One egregious example of this harassment occurred in July 2013 when more than 350 women were forced to pray near a public bathroom while the Haredi opponents were not prevented from throwing eggs at them and blowing whistles to disrupt their prayers. After years of resistance, Israel's attorney general supported women of the wall's contentions that they were victims of discrimination and unjust exclusion, and it seemed the government would finally act. There appear, appeared to be an agreement in January 2016 when the Israeli cabinet passed a resolution agreeing to set up an egalitarian space at the Kotel. However, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu failed to follow up, and after intense lobbying from ultra-Orthodox forces, including the rabbi of the Kotel, Rav Shmuel Rabinovitz, reneged on the agreement in June 2017, saying that several difficulties arose, while disingenuously indicating he still wanted a settlement. Rabbi Rick Jacobs, president of the Union of Reform Judaism, for Reform Judaism, replied that Netanyahu's reversal would be a slap in the face to the vast majority of world Jewry. In November 2017, to celebrate the ordination of four Union of Reform Judaism rabbis, a group of URJ leaders, including Rabbi Jacobs, Rabbi Davidson, and member, member of the Board of Governors of the HUC, 
Rabbi Nama Kelman Ezrahi, and Gilad Kariv, executive director of the reform movement in Israel, now in the Knesset, and Anat Hoffman of Women of the Wall, bearing eight Torah scrolls were accosted first by security personnel at the security checkpoint to the Western Wall complex, where Rabbi Jacobs was threatened with mace by a security guard for a quarter of an hour, and then in the plaza by ultra-Orthodox men who tackled several of those bearing Torah scrolls. Rabbi Ravinovitz, as administrator of the Western Wall, has long opposed egalitarian worship, calling women of the Wall's attempts to, play, to pray a plague and an incitement to civil war, and has refused to comment on the assault of the URJ rabbis. A Supreme Court ruling questioning why security personnel did not protect the, the non-Orthodox has not been answered. Rabbi Davidson denounced the ultra-Orthodox abuse of power, saying, the impunity with which the ultra-Orthodox in Israel too often assault the religious liberties of the non-Orthodox should be intolerable in a democratic state. But empowered by the, the, the stranglehold of his, Israel's religious parties on its coalition government, the chief rabbinate rules as if without a care. Hoffman feared that the violence would increase, saying, we are sitting ducks. Friends, in the diaspora, each community's first priority should be to make their own local community robust and engaging. Unity of a Jewish spirit is essential, but shouldn't be equated with the notion that all Jewish communities must interact with the, with the rest of the world in the same way. The dream of Zionism, a protective state for a persecuted pe people, as many adherents to modern Zionism would put it, shouldn't be transformed into an excuse for reactionary myopia. Should disproportionate amounts of resources be channeled towards Jewish nationalism rather than toward fulfilling our Jewish mandate to reduce suffering in the world on a global scale in keeping with our charge to work to end oppression in recognition of the oppression that we have faced as Jews? We must be clear that in prioritizing the diaspora, we are not, God forbid, abandoning Israel, but rather that we see greater potential in our era to actualize the mission of the Torah in the diaspora, where there is a more open, pluralistic, and progressive ethos for Jewish values to develop within and among us. Sorry, friends, my, my, my initial comments are a little longer today than usual. There's just a, a, a bunch to say. So if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, and then I want to hear from you. What we are witnessing today is a great ideological divide between elements of the Israeli leadership and the Jewish voice in the diaspora. Indeed, this divide puts Israel's security at risk and puts American Jewish identity at risk. There is enormous power, wealth, and creativity in North America that cannot yet be actualized when it is sidetracked to focus so often exclusively on investing in Israel as the center. We would benefit from embracing our diaspora potential rather than merely exporting our, our Judaism to the Israeli playing field of Jewish life while we rest on the sidelines. Israelis are becoming more interested in the lucrative technology field and less in the intellectual challenges and growth possibilities in Jewish thought, one might suggest. Israelis engage in advancing Jewish studies programs who are looking to work in academia are moving to America now to find jobs. Such brain drain indicates that America is becoming a more alluring home for those seeking a spiritual and intellectual playing field when it comes to Jewish thought. Assimilation is only one part of the story. The other part is that innovative Jewish social entrepreneurs in America are creatively and robustly reimagining Jewish life. The diaspora, of course, includes far more than just American Jewry, but that is undeniably the largest community. Most of the six million or more Jews in America want to be here. No Aliyah campaign or, or, or minor, albeit serious, anti-Semitism campaigns will persuade them to make some mass exodus anytime soon. They are here to stay, and their identity and future should be invested in as central. The most recent estimates of Jewish denominations among American Jews are roughly 35% reform, 30% no denomination, 18% conservative, 10% orthodox, modern and ultra-orthodox, and 6% among smaller denominations. This is a liberal Jewish community that increasingly does not find a home in Israel. Should America be the new center for global Jewish life, displacing the perception of Israel as the center? I don't, I'm not sure, I don't think so. But the American Jewish leadership and philanthropists 
would certainly be wise to take liberal American Jewry and its bright future very seriously, just as Israel takes its future very seriously. When American Jews prioritize making the world a better place and consistently feel shame about the Israeli government's policies, are we really going to tell them that they're bad Jews and they just don't get it? We must, of course, engage in American-Israeli American dialogue, as we have so much to learn from one another. But we must also be respectfully honest about the growing divide and about our major differences and values and Jewish ideologies. Now is the time for Jews everywhere to take heed of the words of David Ben-Gurion, who expressed in a 1950, 1950 letter that, the Jews of the United States owe no political allegiance to Israel. We, the people of Israel, have no desire and no intention to interfere in any way with the internal affairs of Jewish communities abroad. The government and the people of Israel fully respect the right and integrity of Jewish communities in other countries to develop their indigenous, social, economic, and cultural institutions in accord with their own needs and aspirations. Jews, no matter where they are, have something special to contribute to the world, regardless of where they are physically. For those who continue to find Zionism to be their most meaningful dimension of their Jewish identity, we need not discourage them on their journey. Rather, we can hope that they will continue to shape Israel morally and spiritually. And who, for those who find Zionism and their relationship to Israel to be more draining and alienating than uplifting, we can urge them not to bail on their Jewish engagement, thereby fostering a big tent, and at the same time urge them to build a positive Jewish identity in the ways that are most poignant and meaningful for them. We are blessed to have a Jewish state, but we are blessed to have learned how to survive and even thrive outside of it during our thousands of years in exile. These two complex interwoven truths can coexist, this is yet another layer to the pluralistic ethos we can embrace. The value of living in Israel is so clear. It is our ancestral home and so deeply tied to our history and our destiny. However, it is also clear that there's a deep value to living in the diaspora based both on our history and our global mission. Living in caravans in a small settlement town during my years learning in Israel, my dream was always to settle the land. As a religious Zionist, I feel that living in Israel is a tremendous and miraculous opportunity and that all Jews can and must consider making this life transition. Indeed, the halachic obligation of Yishuv Haaretz, the religious obligation to settle the land of Israel is a matter of significance and cannot be underestimated. I would like to suggest, however, that in addition to this well-known imperative, there is also a crucial duty in many cases to reside in the diaspora. The Rambam, following the Talmud, uh, allows for limited exceptions to the mitzvah to reside in the land, including studying or teaching Torah, searching for a marriage partner, living in safety, or in the case of economic hardship to earn a living, excuse me, reside outside the land. The Jerusalem Talmud, however, suggests that there is no prohibition against leaving Israel at all, even if one is already living there. In fact, some of the great 20th century rabbinic authorities from the most traditional communities have argued that one is not obligated to reside in Israel at all today. Rabbi Yehuda Amital, who himself built a Zionist yeshiva, he, he said in America there are many great Torah scholars, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Feinstein, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Satan Rebbe, and others. Is it possible that not one of them knows the halakha? While Israel remains the destiny of the Jewish people, we also must not abandon the diaspora. The Torah demands that we as a nation commit to pursuing justice as warriors against injustice. It behooves us to be stationed everywhere around the globe. The work is an orla goyim, a light to the, un, unto the nations, is our raison d'etre. It is in the diaspora where we can fulfill the Torah's charge to combat global poverty, injustice, and oppression, where these negative forces can be found. While Israel has been known to do inspiring humanitarian work, a nation state's primary concern must always be the welfare and security of its own citizens. We must be concerned with Israel's security as well, but our responsibility is broader. I've met thousands of other young Jewish leaders who have intertwined their religious Zionist identities with identities as global citizens. Further, 
Though Jewish thought can and should remain distinct from that of other cultures and obviously other religions, the Jewish intellectual tradition has always benefited and continues to benefit from development in conjunction with a diverse array of neighboring societies. Taking a cue from Muslim scholars such as Al-Farabi and Avicenna, Rambam integrated Jewish thought and Greek philosophy without the need to sacrifice halakha or Jewish identity. In addition, today in America, as, as in the golden age of medieval Spain and earlier, in the days of the Talmudic academies of Babylonia, we see a great concentration of stellar Jewish academic programs and yeshivot. The Mishnaic sage, Rabbi Nuharai, goes so far as to suggest, exile yourself to a place of Torah and do not assume it will come after you, for it is your colleagues that will cause it to remain with you, says in Pirkei Avot. This can and should raise diaspora self-esteem as it mandates that one must reside where they can develop their best intellectual and spiritual achievements. Diaspora Jews are not watching the game from the Israel sidelines, I think. Some of the most significant Jewish contributions have and will continue to be made in the diaspora, where Jews can play a leading role in fighting injustice, alleviating poverty, advocating for Israel and Jewish interests, and learning from people of other faiths. While the modern state of Israel is one of the greatest brachot of the Jews have ever received, it cannot be neglected. We must also be sure to actualize all of our values in the Jewish tradition. So just to move us towards a conclusion here, Aliyah to Israel is on the rise. 17,880 immigrants arrived in Israel in, in 5770, that was 2009 to 2010, as compared to 15,180 in 2008 to 2009. That's an increase of 18%. In more recent years, the totals have topped 20,000 and even more. There is no need for the demographic prophecies of gloom that if we don't make Aliyah immediately, Israel will fumble and that the diaspora provides no hope for the Jewish future. Neither argument paints an accurate picture nor does either reflect the faith to survive that has driven Jews for millennia. Friends, many have argued for Shalila Hagola, the idea that one cannot sustain a Jewish life outside of Israel. One should be cautious of those who suggest that one can only live fully as a Jew in Israel. While there are particularistic mitzvot that can only be performed in Israel, there are also universalistic mitzvot that can only properly be achieved with the cooperation of Jews in the diaspora. Ultimately, after considering the needs of one's own family, one should not feel shame in choosing to reside in London or Kiev or Chicago or Scottsdale, but rather should proudly accept the responsibilities of supporting Israel while at the same time serving as a global ambassador for the Jewish people. Okay, friends, that was a little bit long-winded, but I would love to hear from you and what you think. Yes, okay, Lauren, let's hear from Lauren. Okay, so you, you were talking about something that's very dear and near to my heart and difficult. I mean, as you know, I made Aliyah my last time. I've done it twice. My last time, I lasted seven years and they came back. But I came back to like a greater Toronto area of 190,000 Jews and you know, a, a, a population of 5 million. So it's easy to be a Jew in Toronto. Would I come back if I lived in Hamilton or Vancouver? Probably not. But I think there's two things that we have to remember. One is Jewish history, right? One could talk about beautiful, glorious Jewish communities and roads throughout Spain in my father's town of Krakow, right? And, and they don't exist. And I mean, what the, next to the American Jewish community, the next largest is France, but they're leaving in droves. All my neighbors in Yerushalayim were French. So I think, yes, the here and now, there's some great stuff going on in the diaspora. And to me, like New York City is Yerushalayim number two, but we've got to remember the history. The other thing is Israel. When I gave up, when I left, I actually, they're pretty well given up any hope of anything improving. However, the new government gives me hope. The, the Haredim are not part of the government. We have a very pragmatic, modern Orthodox prime minister in Naftali Bennett, who is hand in hand with Yair Lapid, who's a completely secular Jew, but who has respect. Um, and is also the child of a survivor. And, 
you know, I when I was living, I kept thinking, oh, if only there were more North Americans living here, more liberal Brits. Because I'll tell you, in Southern Yerushalayim is where it's at. There's Reform Synagogue, there's Conservative Synagogue, there's Egalitarian Modern Orthodox Synagogues. So like, it's not black and white. It, you know, not all of it isn't the Kotel. Zephon Yaakov also, we had a really, 30% of the population of Zephon is quote unquote Anglo, and there's a lot of diversity and we all get along. So, you know, there's much to be hopeful. So that's my answer. I'm a little pessimistic about the future in the diaspora. I'm a little optimistic about Israel, but really we should all go there, but I can't do it. Great, okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I, I can certainly understand why some would be pessimistic now and why some would be uh, about diaspora and why some would be optimistic about Israel. That certainly makes sense. I do wanna, and I say this not to challenge and I say this not to make anyone uncomfortable, but I've always struggled with the idea of what history should teach us about Jewish security. We might say history can teach us that Jews are not safe in the diaspora, but history can also teach us that Jews aren't safe in Israel. Um, we can say, oh, look, where were Jews safe in the diaspora? But when were Jews safe in Israel? You wanna go back a few thousand years? We had 2,000 years lacking sovereignty, and when we had sovereignty, we had two we had exiles. Um, and so, and so, if we're going to use history as an example that Jews aren't safe in the diaspora, then we should also use history as an example that Jews aren't safe in Israel. Um, and if if we're going to use Israel Israeli sovereignty today as a proof that Israel that Jews are more safe there, then we should use Jewish acceptance in North America as a proof that Jews are safe here in a, in a new, unprecedented way. But I, to be honest, I'm really not sure what history tells us about where Jews are safe. I used to think history tells us eventually they're going to come for us here too. Eventually we're going to have to flee here also. But that, that's the same as in Israel as well. Yes, yes, Hannah. So um, thank you. It was a very interesting uh, presentation. And as you know, you and I have had many of these conversations in the past. So for me, this was like, wow. Um, Shmuley and I are now on the same page kind of thing. Um, but the, there is no question in my mind that particularly what the women of the Kotel are doing is for me a major, major problem is what's going on in Israel. Um, our granddaughter, our oldest granddaughter who was in Israel um, a year and a half ago or so when Ben was brought here because COVID started and she was there this summer. Uh, when she was there the first time, she spent a lot of time going to the Kotel with the women of the Kotel. And that's a major thing for her. And I'm concerned, even though she loves Israel and she wants to go there, her feeling is that uh, she's very feminist in her thinking is she's very committed to Judaism um, and practices Judaism, but the idea that in Israel she wouldn't be a full-fledged uh, person by the, the status of the rabbinate and what the government is sanctioning as a, um, as a situation that for us, for me and for her, it, it wouldn't work. We couldn't be there and still feel like we can practice Judaism in our form because they are not allowing the conservative and reform synagogues to grow in Israel. They are not getting any government support like the Haredi are getting for all their religious institutions. And therefore I can't see myself really feeling like I would feel comfortable in my Jewish role in Israel. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that comment. And um, it's beyond me to, argue, to offer any ideas of how we would achieve religious pluralism uh, in Israel. But um, I think what is in the scope of this is what do we do with young Jews or really any Jews um, who, because of the lack of religious pluralism, experience an enormous barrier to the engagement with that state. And um, uh, I think in this, it, the younger generations are less willing than some past generations to say, you know what, that's a small factor to me. Like the, the conflict is a small factor. The growing ultra-Orthodox population, lack of religious pluralism is a small factor. Not feeling represented is a small factor. 
Um, and my love is overwhelmingly so strong that I can look past all that. Someone like me and someone like you might still feel such a deep love beyond those problems and others won't. And what do we do with that? And what do we do with that, that changing dynamic? Um, and the clock is ticking and that divide is increasing. Yes, Cheryl. Um, a couple things. That was really a terrific presentation. Um, you, you address so many of the things that go around in my head. Um, a couple things early on when uh, you mentioned about uh, Israel saying, you know, that America needs to take care of itself. And um, Ehud Barak spoke here a few years ago on behalf of the Federation, and he said exactly that same thing. Don't worry about Israel. We'll be fine. Worry about your own here. You know, we need to improve and strengthen our own diaspora community for the sake of Israel, but for also the sake of ourselves. I was not familiar with the term Israelism versus Judaism, but I think that might go hand in hand with, um, well, wait, let me just get to one more thing about uh, Darren Kleinberg said at one point that Israel is becoming progressively less relevant to the next generations because of a lot of things I think that Hannah said, you know, and a lot of other reasons too. So, you know, it may, you know, it may be, I mean, I see in my own kids, um, they've all been to Israel. I don't, I don't see them rushing to say, oh, can't wait till the kids get older and we'll all go to Israel. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just saying that, you know, just from my own personal experience right now, um, uh, that I, I don't see that as something and certainly not to move there. Um, so based on the Israelism versus Judaism, um, APAC has always been kind of a problem for me because I think it is replaced, especially in the recent years, the political discourse is such that it's either you are for Israel, regardless of any other values or policies that a candidate might propose. And therefore, if you're not for that candidate, then you're against Israel, so. Yeah, thank you, Cheryl. I, I, I can't imagine anything less Jewish than saying you're not allowed to argue, discuss, have different views, engage in the complexity. Like to be a Jew means to be loyal to a party line. That feels like the most un-Jewish approach you know, and so we can advocate for Israel, support Israel, and also have a rich discourse of argumentation um, and pushback. Um, so I, I appreciate you raising that point. And just as I'm uncomfortable with the far right approach and how it's not only destroying that Jewish discourse and alienating so many Jews who have a lot to say and want to talk about this, I also want to push back on the far left um, on this point too. The hypocrisies in the far left. Let me give just one of those examples. Um, for example, the, the, the distaste today for nationalism. As I pointed out, I myself have a distaste for nationalism that, uh, uh, that, that um, overcomes uh, uh, values and religion, yeah, as we see kind of sweeping away America and other countries today, uh, this, this zeitgeist of nationalism. However, if you're a progressive Jew who says, oh, I hate this nationalism that's in Judaism now, you know, and then you go advocate for Palestinian nationalism, do they not see the hypocrisy? You say, I'm opposed to Jewish nationalism because nationalism is not a Jewish thing, but I argue for Palestinian nationalism. Well, what is that? Are you opposed to nationalism or pro-nationalism? And if you're gonna stand for Palestinian statehood and nationalism, then you should also stand for Jewish nationalism. It doesn't mean it has to be your dominant identity, but I think that um, we have to return to this place where we can figure out how to, um, how to love and be in relationship and also struggle and challenge and also how to say to some of our kids, if this is your kid, um, you know what? You don't have a great relationship with Israel. That's okay. You can have an amazing Jewish life and identity and not have that central. That's okay. Right? There's so much to Judaism beyond Zionism and beyond Israel itself. Right? I would argue it is a crucial element. And for a full, a full Jewish identity and a full Jewish approach, it has to be one of those crucial elements. But one can most certainly, um, as many do, cultivate a Jewish identity without certain elements. I know Jews who don't know any Hebrew, but they're proud Jews. I know Jews who are not observant, but they're proud Jews. I know Jews who don't like a filter fish, and they're proud Jews. 
<laughs> right? So there's a whole bunch of uh, crucial pieces to the puzzle that you could uh, not be a part of and still be um, and still be a proud human. So thank you for that. Thank you, Scott. Yes. Oh, can't hear you, Scott. Are you not plugged in? Okay, let's come back to you, Scott. I see your headset, but I must not be plugged in. Someone else want to jump in while Scott's working that out? Yes, Michael. Again, I think part of almost we need to go back and to define the question. We're talking about for the, the, the relationship we're talking about the development of, of the religion of Judaism in a modern area. We're talking about the saving of us as a people. Are we talking about, because I think a lot of the intellectual effort and look at, and, and seeing how the revival of Israel as a religion in the modern area has happened in this country. And with, with um, reform, conservative, um, Reconstruction, people struggling with it. And in many ways, though, due to the assimilation challenges, it's been more challenged. I sometimes wonder in the long term, does the survival and adaptability of the religion really comes from more what's going on in this country? So it depends how we define it. And my other observation is. If you live in America, America is the most important. If you live in Israel, America, yeah, send us more money in your kids. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, so a few things here. First, I think like the overarching principle um, here needs to be humility, as always, right? That um, people in Israel who will dismiss the diaspora and take advantage of it not read any of our news or visit or support, but want to want to take advocacy, demand advocacy, you know, shame us for being assimilated and intermarried and we have it all wrong. And the only value to you is to support us. And that's not very humble or right in my view. And uh, in the diaspora, um, the humility also around um, our, our own role and our own, uh, our, our, our own relationship to Jewish survival. And I think that the humility around what enables Jews to survive we don't exactly know. What enables Jews to thrive? We don't exactly know. I'm sure we all have a lot of ideas, but we don't know what's gonna happen with, God forbid, Iran or neo-Nazis or um, other anti-Israel, anti-Semitic forces. We don't know where Jews are more safe, ultimately. God forbid there's another exile out of Israel. God forbid there's another exile out of, an exile out of North America. We don't know. And we also don't know, so to speak, in theological terms, what brings redemption? Is it North American Jews who will redeem the world? Is it Israel that will redeem? We really, we really don't know. So one last thing, and then I, I'm going to go to Scott's comments over here on the side, is that because what Mike brought up here about, around assimilation, you know, I really do think you have to be invested in the Jewish community to um, uh, be taken seriously. Um, if you're assimilated and you don't hold any Ahavat Israel, you have no sense of love of the Jewish people, how can, how can you be guiding um, the discourse around Jewish security? I, I think Ahavat Yisrael has to be a guiding principle. You are concerned about the Jewish future. You love your fellow Jew. And contrary to many assimilated Jews, I think we have to make clear that Ahavat Yisrael is not in opposition to loving humanity. They're like, oh, if I love Jews, then maybe I don't love humanity. Maybe I'm not a universalist. No. You can love your family differently than your neighbor. You can love Jews differently than you can love a Christian friend, right? It is okay to have Abbot Yisrael and I think necessary to be invested in this discourse. Okay, so Scott writes on the side, as a tech executive, I'm curious, do you think COVID, Zoom, remote work will impact where people wanna live and work? Specific to this conversation, I mean, maybe technology weakens our sense of geographical identity. Okay, very interesting. So one of the things that's happening in the business world is a process of decentralization. If you look at how Netflix operates, remember Blockbuster? I don't know what was before Blockbuster, you tell me. Uh, um, think about how you access film through Netflix. Remember taxi cabs? Did you ever go to a taxi cab? Okay, now think about Uber and Lyft, right? Think about how you used to go to the supermarket. Remember the supermarket, that thing that used to exist? 
Now you order your food by Amazon or Instacart or whatever you get, right? Everything is decentralized, how the systems operate. So too, as Scott is pointing out, the systems of decentralization are happening in communities as well. It used to be that you live next to your shul. If you're Orthodox, you probably still do. But if you're not Orthodox, you probably live five miles, 10 miles, 15 miles from your shul, right? Because what do you care? You're going to get in your car and drive, right? Um, and so decentralization expands. Remember, remember Jewish flight or white flight? Also, when Jews lived in urban centers around America, and Jews moved to suburbs. Decentralization of Jewish communities. Um, and, you know, and so you could look at every Jewish community and see how that migration has kind of affected its community in many ways and what that means. And so too here, what does it mean that you can participate in Jewish communities? Oh, I love Sharon Browse and Ikar. I'm gonna to go to Ikar for Yom Kippur while I live in Siberia, right? I love my shul in New York, but you know what? I wanna be in the beach in Hawaii. I'm gonna to go to shul in New York while I'm on the beach in Hawaii, right? Uh, you know, you wanna learn with Valley Bait Madras, of course you do, and you live in Shanghai. And so you're gonna say, well, why do I have to leave Shanghai? I can be a member of BBM in Shanghai, you know? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question. What does it mean in a, in a COVID world? And, and many people are not going back. Many people are like, oh, we can't wait for in-person learning. And other people are like, I don't wanna go back to in-person. Like, I'm loving this. Like, I can be in my uh, slippers and uh, bathrobe. I know none of you are right now, you know, and uh, have some pudding in my kitchen while I engage in this. This is amazing. And if I'm bored, I'll just turn it off. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know I'll, I'll tell you something funny though. I was recently doing something on Zoom and there was a, a very nice woman in probably her 80s, maybe her 90s, and she didn't realize her 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 mute her mute button was off. And she says in the middle, as loud as she can to the person next to her, "This is so boring." And I'm sitting there, oh my goodness, this like if you're teaching in person, no one is ever gonna just scream, "This is so boring." But she didn't realize she wasn't muted, so I'm like, "Whoa, yeah, it was a great moment." So. Scott, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, Cheryl, over to you. Uh, just one, just a quick um, note on what Scott just brought up. And uh, that's it. My daughter, Jessica, lives in Bend, Oregon, which is a, a really hot spot, growing city. Um, she went to, a, they went to a family Rosh Hashanah service, and she said, there's so many new Jewish families here. They just are, uh, you know, they're with young children and everything. And it's because of exactly that. People are realizing now they don't have to live where they work and they're choosing a lifestyle that is going to be better for them in a nicer place with year round sports and outside activities, as long as there's no fires. But, uh, you know, it's just the situation is that it's a boon to these growing, you know, places that are nice places. But then it goes back to your point of white flight where people are leaving the less desirable neighborhoods or less desirable cities. So there's, you know, it's on, it's, it's a balance on one hand, it's bad for one and good for the other. Yes. So. Yes. So two things, then I see Lauren's hands back up. Thank you, show for that. And I want to say two things there. First, I think one of the ways I failed today is that I want to be sure that this isn't a fear driven discourse or a shaming discourse. Oh, here's why Israel is so terrible. Here's why diaspora is so terrible. Here's why the Holocaust is gonna happen here or happen there. It should be a life-affirming discourse. If you're Israeli and you love Israel, like live in Israel and be proud. If you live in, if you live in, in Vancouver or Argentina, you know, and you love where you live, love it and be proud. And I think we can be life-affirming. It should be a positive life-affirming conversation. I think one of the challenges is that we have moved to an individualistic culture rather than a collectivist culture. And that's not just a critique, there's benefits to that. But today, life affirming means what's good for me, what's good for my family. And I could see why people would make their life decisions in such a way. But the other question that has to be alongside that is what's good for the Jewish people? What's good for our collective? And how do I participate in that as well? How do I make choices for me and my family that are good for me, where I wanna live and where I wanna be and what I can access, but that's also good for our survival. Okay, I see uh, um, Lauren and then Hannah, and then we're gonna wrap up. Okay, very quickly. So we're a lot of us speaking about diversity are yeah. speaking from a term of Ashkenazi, North American Jews. Go to one of the three Sparty Jews in Toronto and they're 
it's Sparty. Whether they drive there or not, it's an Orthodox Sparty style. So the majority of Jews in Israel are Sfardim or Mizrahim, and the whole idea of pluralism is just not there. French Jews would not, not relate to this. British Jews would not relate to the whole idea of pluralism. And the majority of Israelis, even Ashkenazim, the ones who are secular, if you're telling them, oh, yes, yeah, and I'm concerned about when are the wall too, but most secular Jews wouldn't even go to the Kotel. They can't even imagine why you wanted the Kotel. So you have to understand it from the Israeli point of view. And pluralism is, is it's a non sequitur there. It's a non-go. The reform and conservative shuls there are mostly with Anglo Jews and Israeli Jews who live in North America. Yeah. Okay, Lauren, thank you for that. Hannah. So um, you were talking about um, the transformation that we take. Like, you know, when we were exiled 2000 years ago from, we refer, basically changed the whole structure of our observances. We went to rabbinic Judaism versus, you know, the Judaism of the temple at that point. This is where we are at right now, considering that we wouldn't even bring a cell phone into the synagogue before COVID. Now we carry our laptops with us to the synagogue and watch on Zoom and, and comment on what's going on with the service, you know, during the service essentially. Um, and I guess every so many decades, centuries or whatever, there comes a transformation and nothing is gonna be the same before that was before COVID, after COVID. We are just living it now. And how far it goes, it, it's, it's gonna be a question that we are gonna to have to grapple with. Awesome, thank you, thank you. Uh, very interesting. Eric, over to you. Thank you. Uh, this has been very, very fascinating. Uh, you gave great citations and examples when you're citing like Ehud Barak and other politicians that have said directly and, and indirectly or alluded to like, you know, is it, Israel will be fine, take care of it yourself, strengthen the diaspora and so on and so on. Uh, you know, there, there are, I know you haven't gave examples, but I know we all know about different programs that are like that are one directional from the diaspora to Haaretz on education, informing, uh, enlightening Jews and to, to, with their roots, the Haaretz. Um, what programs or institutions, whether they're, they're, they're local by nature or they're, they're global, did you see where it's the opposite, that it's, it's the opposite direction that are from, from Haaretz to the diaspora? Because I'm wondering if the notion of the Israelis are saying is, let, you know, we'll be fine, strengthen yourselves. What institutions are there that are helping with the notion of the center of Haaretz versus the diaspora? What institutions are kind of helping uh, shifting the shifting away from where the center point is of, of from Israel towards the diaspora. Well, who's helping that? Yeah, thank you. So, um, uh, great question, Eric. And um, you're you're right that it's uh, it's in many ways unidirectional. Um, and however, I mean, if you look at the hundreds of thousands of, of Israelis that live in America, uh, by the way, undocumented, many of them, <laughs> um, which is a, a different conversation. Um, What's undocumented Israelis? Undocumented Israelis who, 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 how when was the last time you heard about a deported Israeli from America? You don't hear about that, but, but huge numbers of undocumented Israelis. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, the, unidire the unidirectional dimension here is, um, is something that uh, many uh, organizations are addressing and they are trying to build that discourse, build that dialogue, uh, educate Israelis around. How, how North American and diaspora Jewish life works and the value there. Um, there is a significant investment in that, and yet it struggles because it's not part of the culture. There's not a huge desire for it. There may be a desire to come make money here or to move here just to, to flee Israel for many. Um, but to learn from American Jewish life is almost dismissed. Why would we learn from an assimilated culture, right? This is uh, almost like Judaism in America is almost like half Christian. It's like, this is, this is Christianity, it's not real Jew. And that's why you'll find many Israelis in the diaspora, the only one an Orthodox rabbi. You think they're gonna be anti-Orthodox because they, they had Orthodoxy, you know, thrown down, shoved down their throat. Many of them only want Orthodoxy, um, Orthodoxy or nothing, even if they wanna be secular, which is an interesting 
uh, tension that still exists because they don't trust American Judaism. It's liberal, it's watered down, it's too Christian-like. This is not something to take serious. When's the last time you saw Israelis at a reform or conservative synagogue? I mean, very rare, unless they've been here for decades. Um, and so that's a, that's a whole other uh, conversation. Um, and then there's the whole engagement around who's actually reaching out to and, uh, and engaging Israelis in a non-political Jewish way. You have the, IIC, the IAC, kind of a far-right Israeli political uh, or organization in the diaspora that's engaging Israelis. But in, in terms of a religious or ethical mandate um, or learning experience, there's, there's a lack there too. So you're right. And there are organizations working on this and foundations funding it, but there's still a big gap. So friends, as always, the debate continues. Who, what is the center? Is Israel the center? Is the diaspora the center? Is there no center at all? We can all hold our views and hopefully let's keep it alive. We will not see you again until, uh, when, when is it, Pam? We will see you again, not in this month because of Sukkot and Simchat Torah. It's we will see you. October 5th. October 5th. Yashikoach and Marchatimah Tovah. Have a great day, everyone. See you soon. Thank you. Bye, Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.